But we are in uh, Luke chapter 12 this morning, and uh, we are, last week we stopped our study at verse 34, okay? Um, but I, the conversation that we're studying doesn't actually stop at verse 34. There was just some things that we wanted to think through and get to, um, and I'm glad we did that, but the conversation continues. Uh, so what I want to do to just start us off this morning is, is actually go back and just read kind of the last part of the conversation that we're studying so that we get the flow and the context of what is happening here because there was a lot to it. So I'm going to put, uh, we're going to start off at verse 22. I'll put this on the screen. We'll just read it all together. Um, wow. I'm going to do this. Otherwise, I'll need a chiropractor. Uh Verse 32, here's, here's, just, just read with me just to kind of get a feel of where we're at in this conversation. He, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I'm already discouraged, right? Uh, okay, here we go. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? He continues. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So prior to this, Jesus has exposed already in, the, in, the, in this conversation this idea of discontentment in our life, and now he's going to anxiety. And he's tying both, as we talked about last week, which is a worthy conversation, tying both to how we pursue security in the world. And his point is, is like, what, why are you coveting and trying to want something that you don't own and someone else does? You're discontent with something. And what makes you think you're going to be content with what you want when you're not already content with what you have? He's forcing thought. Then he moves to anxiety. Why, what, the anxiety and how it's moving us to find security in different things. And what he's pointing to is basically the idea that you're not going to actually be able to satisfy your need for security in the things you can work for. The security actually comes from what God has given to you already, and that's the kingdom. Now, that's a worthy work on our parts to sift through that 
And if you missed last week, I would, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it's, it's really critical uh, to think through that stuff. But Jesus continues the conversation as if that wasn't enough to process. Um, we're, we're breaking it up in a couple of weeks, but the conversation is continuing. And Jesus is going to continue pushing on having a little larger mindset than our worries in our world and in our own life and today and tomorrow and, and, and these kind of He's pushing us to think a little bit larger, and it it's actually uh, serves as a motivation uh, into what he would say is true life. The anxieties of our world are small and smaller picture, and he's going to keep pushing on this. So we're going to pick it up in verse 35, and we'll read along here. So here's what he says. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may, be op- they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So it's this idea of you're a servant, and your master is gone, and you're going to keep things going in light of the master's purpose, which we'll see here. So when he comes back, you're ready. So the the metaphor is pretty simple. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will give, he will have and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third, so if it takes longer than the servant thought or anticipated. I'm trying to find my spot here. Yeah, thank you. And finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, here's the deal. In this conversation, Jesus is moving. He's talking to an individual, then he talks to the crowds, and then he addresses his disciples, and he's going back and forth. And so Peter's like, does this apply to me? And what, what Jesus, what you'll see is Jesus actually doesn't even address him. So it's implied, yes, this is for everybody. Now, the metaphor is really simple. So the, the story is simple. So if you know, if you're a servant and there's a master gone, the master is going to come back at some point. But you're gonna, you need to be ready. The servant has to be ready. And if you know a thief is going to come, the point is very simple. If you know a thief's going to come, what you do in your life in that moment is going to have a little foresight. Agree? That's all he's saying. That you're practicing life in this moment. When you know something's going to happen, you adjust, you keep it in mind, and the foresight informs your practices. It's really simple. That's all he's getting to. And so understanding that, Jesus continues in verse 42. He says this, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So let's think about different types of servants here. One that's not ready, one that is. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him 
over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, it's not in my timing, and begins to beat the male and female servants, which is an extreme example of the day, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, it's not um, necessarily get out a machete, right? What he's saying is, is that in the context of this day, he's drawing literal, he's saying this is literally what's going to happen, and this is a metaphor that's not supposed to be literally applied to our relationship with God, but it does paint the picture of what Jesus is talking about. If the servant is, is disobedient to what the master's purpose is and will is, and goes off on his own, and starts to please himself through beating people and drinking and all this stuff, he's going to get a beating. Literally, that's what would have happened in this context. That servant would have been the property of the master, and that's literally what would have happened. Now, that's not to be literally applied to our relationship with God, although there should be some reverent fear there. Um, but we get the other idea of what's happening here. And then here's, here's what verse 47 says. And that servant who knew his master's will or his master's purpose but did not get ready or act according to his will or purpose will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. In other words, sometimes in that context, a servant would, just in ignorance, wouldn't have really known, but still would be punished, but not as severely as somebody who understands the purpose of the master and is not following through with it. Understand? So the context here is this. So he ends this little section. He says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So it's clear that Jesus is hinting at this bigger picture of the biblical story where the world is going to actually, through his return, the Son of Man, so in this metaphor, Jesus is saying, I'm the master that's going to return, the, the, the restore the world back to God's original purpose. And he's trying to get this bigger picture mindset in the life of his wit, uh, listeners here. So there's two major things that he's saying. Very simple. Jesus, as the master, is going to come back and issue a final verdict on the world with a purpose in mind, to restore what God's original purpose was. The second thing we know is that you don't know when that's going to happen. So the metaphors are really simple. Okay, We understand there's something bigger that we're going to think through, we have to keep in mind, and that's going to inform our life practices, or it ought to. And this is what Jesus is getting to here. Now, the biblical story is founded on the idea that God is good and that God is loving and he was self-sustaining. So in the beginning, before Genesis 1-1, God, as we understand through Scripture, was Father, was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit was communicating all that. So there's this self-giving, loving relationship. And as we read Genesis chapter 1, the world is then created for human beings to flourish in relationship with God. So that was the purpose. There was a purpose in God's creation. And this is the story of the Scripture. Now, we also know 
that human beings uh, not just oppose the self-giving, loving nature of God and Father giving himself the Son and vice versa, but we actually own the self-love and we, the Bible calls it sin. So we, we reject who God is and then we take on this thing called selfishness, right? Selfishness doesn't work great in relationship. Agree? How's that working in your marriage? Right? doesn't work great. So at very least, what selfishness does, not taking the consideration of other people, what that does is it breaks down relationship. And if that's one-sided or whatever, it starts to break down. What makes God so beautiful is that the Father was giving himself the Son, and that was reciprocated back. So this giving nature of God. And what human beings do, according to the the Scriptures, um, is that we actually oppose that. But the biblical story is that God, in his self-giving, loving nature, will ultimately restore his purposes of having human beings flourish in relationship with God. And that will occur when Jesus comes back. So it's all pain. It's all, all this metaphor is doing is trying to get the people in front of him to think bigger about God's purposes in life and how that might inform their practices in life. Make sense? So at this point, it's probably best to talk about Mr. Miyagi. Um, <laughs> remember the movie Karate Kid, 1984? Yeah. Um, if, you, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm going to watch it, I think, tonight, because actually I've been thinking about it. I'm like, that was a good movie. Um, hopefully it's on Netflix. Um, it's not? You've looked for it. Okay, all right. I might rent it on iTunes. Um, but the story is, is it actually a great story. Um, and, and what you have is, in the beginning, you have Daniel. Anybody know his last name? LaRusso? Yeah, right. Daniel LaRusso, I think was his name in the film. And he is getting beaten up. And then out of nowhere, Mr. Miyagi comes in and karate chops all the people and saves Daniel. This is how it starts. And Daniel's kind of blown away, like, what just happened? And he pursues Mr. Miyagi. One, to thank him. But then secondly, he, he actually wants to learn what Mr. Miyagi did. He wants to learn karate. So he pursues Mr. Miyagi. Initially, Mr. Miyagi is rejecting him, like, no, 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 don't really want to learn. Finally gives in to his request, says, okay. But the first thing that Mr. Miyagi starts having Daniel do, do you remember, is paint the fence. And you're not just painting the fence like just get it done. You're painting it like with brushes like this, right? So Daniel is taking the paintbrush, and he finishes this section. He goes back to Mr. Miyagi and goes, hey, Mr. Miyagi, I'm done. And Mr. Miyagi goes, no, 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 Daniel-san. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right accent. He goes, the whole yard. And it's this picture of this massive fence. And Daniel's like, what? So he goes, and he's doing it, and he's painting exactly the way. He leaves. He's kind of confused. But he shows up again, and Mr. Miyagi has another chore for him to do, and that's to wax the cars that are sitting in the yard. If you've ever seen Sanford and Son, it feels like that. It's like this massive kind of just junkyard of cars. 
But he's very particular, again, with how he's waxing it. He says, wax on, wax off, right? So this idea of Daniel, now he starts to do this, and, he's, and he starts to shortchange it. He starts to, like, do this, and Daniel, or Mr. Miyagi comes out and says, no, 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 wax on, wax off. So Daniel is doing this on all of the cars, and at the end, he gets frustrated. If you, if you watch the movie, he gets frustrated, and he's like, I don't understand why I'm doing all this stuff. And he starts to yell at Mr. Miyagi, and he has this kind of conflict with him and tension, and Mr. Miyagi stops him and says, Daniel, throw a punch at me. And so he starts to block it with the paint strokes and then kicks. And he says, wax on, and he's blocking kicks. And all of a sudden, in that moment, the practices that Mr. Miyagi was having him focus on matched with his own purpose. And then he saw the value. So he didn't get how the practices were, uh, were applying to his own purpose of learning karate. But when Mr. Miyagi connected those things, then he saw great value in the practices. Make sense? Now, this is also true for us. Unless we can connect God's purposes to our practices, the Christian life doesn't actually make sense. The idea of looking at the practices of Jesus here, as he's talking about being alert and being ready and all the and watching our anxiety and all these things, none of those practices actually make sense to us unless we connect it to God's purpose. Our issue, what's confusing is, is we try to take, in the Christian world, our tendency is to do this. I have my own purposes, but I'm a Christian, so I want to try to apply the practices of Jesus. And when we do that, we don't see the actual value of the practices and selfless ways of Jesus because they don't match our purposes. Make sense? So when Jesus is talking about this mindset of a bigger picture, that practice is not going to make sense unless you're aligning with God's purposes. And if unless you have that, the value of the Christian life doesn't make sense. In fact, following Jesus doesn't even make sense. So this metaphor that Jesus is using here, all it is is a reminder of this larger picture of God's purpose of restoration. And what Jesus is saying is, let your practices, not of anxiety and discontentment, in the minute things in the short-term mindset of your day, Step out just for a moment and think bigger about what God's doing. And for Jesus, um, he's saying the master's going to come back for that purpose to be restored. And Jesus, in his goodness and his love, is inviting his listeners, and which include us, into that mindset, those practices that align with God's purposes. When we can connect those things, we see great value in following Jesus. Now, what he says at the end of this section is, he says, um, to whom much is given, of him much will be required. So the question is, is like, what in the world have we been given? What, what are we as servants in this metaphor of our master, which would be Jesus, God? What have we been given to be watchful of? Now, at first, our mind might also go to immediately go to like my children, good, my work, good, 
our possessions, our property, our land, whatever it is. We might go to all these things of which we're supposed to steward. That's where our mind would naturally go, and that's, that's not a bad thing. That's great. We need to steward those things that we're called to care for. However, the context is getting us out of those worldly things. And so I want to draw us bigger and because Jesus draws it bigger than those worldly things. Um, in fact, we just read it. In verse 32, this is what Jesus says we've been given. Throw this up. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, not just your possessions, the kingdom, like all of it. Now, in Luke, what we have is, is we have this description and constant proclamation of Jesus for the kingdom. We've talked about it in a few different ways. But one of the ways, again, when we talk about the kingdom, we talk about it this way. That the good news or the gospel of God, the good news of God through Jesus, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is being expressed into the broken realities of the world. So that's most obviously seen with like the sick, healing the sick, healing the lame, healing those that are demon-possessed. But it's also shown in freeing those that are held captive by something other than the purposes of God. And that's a freeing and liberating thing. And so when Jesus is bringing the goodness of God into the broken realities of life, even our own lives, freeing us of our anxiety, freeing us of those things that are holding us captive from true life, people are exposed to that. And when they begin to see the beauty of that, they start to follow Jesus' ways because they see the value of it. And the more they follow Jesus, they're connecting the dots to God's purposes through Jesus, and they're more motivated or compelled to join in on that process and that story. They're accepting the invitation of Jesus to join in. This is one way of understanding the kingdom. For Jesus, this is a one-way street to true life. And what, what Jesus is saying is, is God is pleased to give you this because he believes that it's actually the road to true life. So the Bible defines God as self-giving love. And the Bible is also clear that we are created in his image. So in other words, we are going to, at very minimally, we are going to give ourselves to something in love. We're going to love something or someone. We're going to give ourselves to that. The invitation of Jesus is, is to understand that God has given you something to give yourself to, and that's his purposes. And it's God's pleasure to give this opportunity to you because it's the road to true life. And when we understand all of that, we understand then to express the goodness of God into the broken reality, to invite it into our own broken realities, and to express it outwards actually becomes our purpose. And so this makes the practices of Jesus way more valuable. It's when those are disconnected that the Christian life is confusing. It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is getting us to think through this. And when this one-way street is walked on, things happen. Watch this, verse 49. Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and with that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. In other words, um, this could be really confusing at, at first, but 
Jesus is referring to this baptism that he has that is, it serves as like an inauguration to his ministry. So Jesus, when he first starts his ministry, he starts to proclaim the kingdom, God's goodness in breaking into the broken realities of the world and calling people to join in that process and that story. Um, and so Jesus is pointing back and he says, man, this is like the beginning for me. And I, I want to offer this offer, uh, um, invitation to people. Be baptized. Inaugurate into the story. And I, I'm, I have a sense of urgency about this. I want to see this accomplished. I'm here on mission. I'm going to stay alert. I'm going to be dressed for action. I'm going to keep my lamp on. And I want to see this happen. So he goes on, verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Most of us would go, actually, yes. Yep. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be divided, five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, when we look at this, this, this really is conflicting. Because at, at first glance, we can say, what? That is not the Jesus that I follow. Because actually, what the angel said was that peace is on earth now when you were born. And frankly, you said you were bringing freedom and liberty to all these broken realities of the world. And so this doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't maybe at first glance. But if you just think like one step deeper, it actually can and does. Um, The simple fact is, is when Jesus is inviting the world and expressing the kingdom ways and inviting the world into those ways, what it forces is a point of sobriety where you actually have to choose whether or not you're going to engage. And because it's so pointed, those opinions and those decisions vary. And this leads to an entirely different path of life. And so in this way, it's actually proof that Jesus is doing what he says he's going to do because he's forcing points of decision of what pathway you're going to walk. And in that sense, the own family structure could be divided. Now, when we look at this, we actually see this proclaimed actually at Jesus' birth. In Luke 2, verse, verse uh, I think it's 34, yeah, Simeon blessed them, talking to Joseph and Mary, Mary's mother, and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is what was prophesied about Jesus. In other words, the work of the kingdom through Jesus forces us to a point of decision. And that is going to cause an opposition of pathways of life. We either receive Jesus' invitation or you don't. And that leads to two different places. So the question as we read this isn't whether or not Jesus' practices are contradictory or disconnected from God's purposes. The actual question is, is it ours? 
That's where we have to get to. And this is where Jesus is going to push on our mindset a little bit more. Watch this, verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So Jesus is getting to this point of decision in two different ways here. The first one is saying, like, you interpret the wind, but you can't see the bigger picture of what God's doing through me. Now, I went to Israel um, a while back, and some things in Scripture, to be totally frank with you, pop out to me more than before, um, which I think would be the hope, right? Um, but this is one of them, actually, because on the West, if the wind is blowing, we understand this from coastal weather, when the wind's blowing in from the coast, it brings moisture and cool air, correct? He's saying, look, you, you could judge this. You have a bigger picture than your own life here. So you, you sense the wind. You know what's coming. So your life practices, or at least what you're wearing, changes. You have a little foresight. You can sense that. You have some foresight, so you adjust. Likewise, he says, from the south. Now, where they're at at this point in time in geography, south of there is Negev Desert, which is brutally hot. So when the winds blow north, actually, the, the area of this, the, the, the heat could rise 30 degrees within one hour. That's crazy, right? So what he's saying is you can sense that. You have a little foresight in your life beyond your immediate setting, and you adjust. So now he's calling to a point of decision. He used this idea of the magistrate or the lawyer, the judge. He says, look, when you know you're off base, you initiate making it right. It's the same way in which one of my daughters might confess what they did before they're caught. It's different, is it not? What Jesus is saying is here, look, would you take a step back? And just assess things for just a moment, larger than your own life, your own worries, your own anxieties, and consider what God's purposes are. Because if you can't do that, the practices of Jesus have no value to you. And they don't have any value if you're trying to apply them to your own purposes. And so Jesus is calling this out. It's a point of decision. So, here, in the set, I just feel like maybe, maybe the the ultimate example of this, of what we would do in our moment of sobriety, of recognizing, trying to realign our purposes with God's, so that we could see the value of following the practices of Jesus, would actually be repentance, and we're going to talk about that next week. But for now, I just want to stop and maybe have some moments of continued reflection. And here's what I would just say. Maybe this is this may not be the this isn't the perfect question for everybody, 
But maybe this is a question in which we can all ask to help us find the appropriate questions to ask for our own individual lives. And here's the question I would just ask you. Do you feel a disconnect from the biblical story of what God's purposes are and your own story? Do you feel there's a disconnect? Because if there is, that's worthy work for you. And it's worthy work for you because that disconnect represents you're not experiencing the life Jesus invites you into. And so it's worthy to go to God and ask for some help to sift through that. You're going to have a really hard time finding value in following Jesus. You could be around church for a long time, still not sense the true value of following Jesus if those are disconnected. So, I'm here to tell you today um, that true life awaits for you in the practicing of the ways of Jesus because it meets God's purposes. And you are created to join in that. You're invited into that, and it waits for you, but there's some reflection to do, and I want to give you time to do that. But we're going to do that through coming to the table. Because it's in this point in time when we can really start to beat ourselves up and go, man, I'm so off, and all these kinds of things. It's not all bad, but you need to be reminded of God's goodness as you reflect and his grace as you reflect. And so as we take these elements, the bread and the juice, we're reminded of the self-giving love of God through Jesus on the cross. And that's given to you in full knowledge that you're in process. So would you just remember that? Um, Let me pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, even though our life practices um, don't align with your purposes all the time, um, in this moment, we at least want to acknowledge your goodness, and your love. And as we take these elements, um, as we sing these praise songs to you, remembered of you, Jesus, and your self-giving love for us, even though we were far off from your purposes. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would be in this time, that you would meet us where we are, that you would cause us to take steps towards aligning our purposes with yours so that we can actually follow the practices of Jesus. And we we ask this, um, I ask this on behalf of us all in this moment because we believe your word to be true and that is that is where true life exists and we want to experience that with you. So, Holy Spirit, we trust you in this time of guiding us, meeting us at the table, and we trust you to guide us forward. Father, we come to you right now, and we sing, and maybe we give financially, we take this bread and this cup, these elements. In the name of Jesus, the perfect example of your self-giving love is because of that, that we pray that you're honored. Amen.